0: If you have benefited from resources produced by G3 Ministries, would you consider donating to support us? Even a few dollars helps us to continue to publish free curricula, articles, podcasts, video resources, and more. Visit g3min.org give or open the G3 app to give a one-time or monthly donation.
1: Articles from G3 Ministries John Gill and the New Jerusalem, written by Chipley McQueen Thornton. Revelation 21, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Many read this as a literal city prepared by God, descending down from heaven. Gill, however, reads it differently. He understands the city not as a place, but rather as a people, all the redeemed from all of time. Progressive dispensationalists, of course, disagree. Yet, let's at least hear out Gill's reasoning. The New Jerusalem even back in Revelation 20, verse 9, Gill calls the New Jerusalem, quote, the general assembly of the firstborn, end quote. In Revelation 21, verse 2, he says, quote, all the elect of God are intended, the whole body and society of them, as being a city, end quote. In the timeline of events, John circles back here to the first resurrection. First, the righteous, both living and dead, are caught up in the air with Christ. Second, the heavens, or atmosphere, and the earth are purged of sin and made new by the great conflagration. Third, John is taken to a high mountain to watch as all the saints from all of time descend to the new earth as a bride adorned for her husband. Gill states This will be the third time that Jerusalem will be built, a local descent of all the saints with Christ from the third heaven into the air, where they will be met by the living saints and their bodies raised and united to their souls. They will reign with Christ in the new earth. John Gill comments on Revelation 21, verse 2. The notion of a city referring to a new society rather than a literal municipality is not without precedent in Revelation. The Apostle John repeatedly uses the city Babylon to refer to the wicked world system and its citizens. The Description of the New Jerusalem Seen this way, the New Jerusalem is the perfected church state in the new earth. Therefore, many of the descriptors are symbolic of this new society's innate qualities. This notion is not without precedent either. In Revelation 11, verse 8, the Apostle John said the two witnesses, quote, will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, end quote. The city's name described the character of its wicked citizens. Here, the city's name describes the character of its righteous citizens. As such... The walls represent salvation, which Satan will try unsuccessfully to broach when he is loosed at the end of the thousand years. The twelve gates represent the twelve tribes of Israel, the root of all the elect. The twelve foundations represent the twelve apostles who pointed men to Christ. The four-square city represents the four corners of the world— which shows the church will fill every part of the new earth. The twelve pearls represent the purity of Christ. The street of gold represents purity of life, etc. You get the idea. Gill takes this as descriptive of a new society's perfect structure rather than a new city's external infrastructure. Reflections This certainly gives us much to think about. There are several strengths to this position. First, it fits within Gill's timeline. If true, what a sight for the Apostle John to see! Billions of redeemed, glorified saints coming to their new home in their new glorified body to live in a new, sin purged earth all sparkling in magnificent radiance. Second, the city is called the bride, the wife of the Lamb, in Revelation 21, verse 9b. It makes sense Christ's bride is a people rather than a four-square city made of stone. Third, the apostate church is called a great city throughout Revelation. It should not surprise us if the redeemed church is called the holy city. Fourth, God can do anything, of course, but it is hard to imagine 12 pearls large enough to be gates. Gill observed, quote, This shows that this account cannot be taken literally, but mystically, for no such pearl was ever known large enough to make a gate of. End quote. See Gill's comments on Revelation 21 21. Certainly, we can think of viable objections to each of those assertions, but Gill's position has other problems too. First, Gill's representations are arbitrary. At times, he seeks to make connections to the Old Testament. But even when he does, no New Testament author makes those same connections. Therefore, he is on shaky ground. Second, Gil takes both the land of Israel, Revelation 20, verse 9, and the new heavens and earth as literal. But in the same breath, he takes the holy city, Jerusalem, as non-literal. Why the switch? Third, The city's measurements with a rod of gold are precise. If John spelled out literal measurements in a literal earth, why isn't it interpreted as a literal city? Fourth, the people will, quote, bring into it, that is, the city, the glory and honor of the nations, end quote, Revelation 21, verse 26 the natural reading sure sounds like a physical city which the elect children enter and bring things into it. So, which is correct? Is it a literal city or is it a new society? Could it be both a literal city and a new society? I'm the son of an attorney and I worked in law for years myself. I could argue any of those positions. If we're honest, we simply don't know. That's hard for some people to admit, but I promise you this.
0: Resembles if
1: you think, think it's a literal city 16, and 20, you get there to find out it is, is not,
0: to from three things, you won't be disappointed. Horses, wives, On gold, the other hand, and do one if you thing, think it's a new society a and you get there to find out book.
1: it is a literal city, Further,
0: the in you Psalm won't be 1, disappointed 3, either. He does shall prosper, On the third hand, brings to mind if God's you're an amillennialist an who thinks it's all symbolic anyway,
1: and you this book get of the there law shall find not out depart it is from quite your mouth,
0: but you shall meditate in it day and night even that you may observe to do according be to all that is written in it. For then you will Christ make your way prosperous, and then you will and have good success. There. Joshua 1.8 Again, this is in the context of God's chosen leader for His people. The imagery of a flourishing tree in Psalm 1 also reminds the reader of God's promise of blessing to Adam, his first chosen royal representative. The psalmist is intentionally using images that describe not just any blessed man, but specifically one in the line of Adam, Moses, Joshua, and ultimately David. That imagery is only intensified in Psalm 2, with explicit mention of Yahweh's anointed and quotation of the Davidic covenant. The specific connection between God's anointed one and delighting in his law is also key to the overarching image of blessedness the psalms portray. Psalms 1 and 2, which form an important introduction to the whole canonical structure of the psalms, are a pairing of a Torah psalm, Psalm 1, with a Messianic psalm, Psalm 2. The other two important Torah psalms, Psalms 19 and 119, are also paired with Messianic psalms, Psalm 18, 20-24, and 110, at key junctures in the progression of the Psalter. David's first heir was Solomon, and thus we would expect to see him appear in the Psalms. Indeed, Solomon has two Psalms ascribed to him, both included at key places in the five-movement development. The first is Psalm 72, the last Psalm of Book 1. The Psalm opens with a direct reference to his father, David, and Solomon's relationship to the promises of the Davidic Covenant. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. Solomon may have composed this Psalm on the occasion of his coronation, but clearly it is meant to signal the transition of the promises of Yahweh's anointed from David to his royal son. Verse eight proclaims that he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, hearkening back to Psalm two eight. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession, and the Davidic covenant itself. Similarly, Solomon's other composition, Psalm 127, is a meditation on the Davidic covenant. His reference to house, unless the Lord builds the house, is not just any house, but the house promised to David. I tell you that the Lord will build you a house, First 1 Chronicles 17.10. When verse 3 proclaims, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the word translated children is literally sons and directly references the Davidic royal line. Just a few psalms later, Psalm 132 uses the same term in an explicit quotation of the Davidic covenant. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body if your sons will keep my covenant, and my testimony which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne for forevermore. Psalm 132, 11 and 12. However, like Adam, and like David his father before him, Solomon fails to be the perfect mediator of God's rule on earth. God's promise that he shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth, Psalm 72, 8, does not come to pass under Solomon's rule. The prophet Zechariah will quote this promise later as something yet unfulfilled. In fact, as a direct result of disobedience to God's prohibitions against multiplying horses, wealth, and wives, the entire nation of Israel rebelled against the rule of Yahweh. Solomon's heir, Rehoboam, walked in ungodly counsel, and the nation split in two. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David, to this day, 2 Chronicles 10, 19. Yet Solomon's failure did not annul God's covenant with David. Indeed, as David proclaims in Psalm eighteen fifty, great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And after reaffirming his delight in God's law in Psalm 19, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. David affirms his confidence in God's faithfulness to his covenant. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Psalm 26. And, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, literally victory, how greatly shall he rejoice. Psalm 21, one. Yet in this section of Messianic Psalms, Psalms 20 through 24, David begins to hint at the reality that the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant with him will be fulfilled by a critically important relationship between the rule of God's anointed and the sovereign rule of Yahweh Himself. For example, while Psalms 20 and 21 focus on the certain rule of David's throne, Psalms 20 and 23 reaffirm the certain rule of Yahweh's throne. For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22:28. This connection between the Anointed One's rule and Yahweh's rule is critical for understanding the canonical flow of the Psalms and, indeed, the progress of redemptive history. God promised to bless humankind by exercising his sovereign dominion through man as his mediatorial king over the earth. Adam failed, and so God promised the fulfillment of his dominion blessing in another seed of the woman. He narrowed that promise in his covenant with David, vowing to bring about his blessing through David's seed. David's son failed, but God remained faithful to his promise through David's greater son. This side of the cross, we now know that this is Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man. God fulfilled His promise of blessing by uniting His sovereign throne with the mediatorial throne of man in a son of David, who is both God and man, Jesus, the Anointed One. Each of the Messianic Psalms certainly apply to David and his royal seed, but ultimately they are fulfilled in David's greater son. The Apostle Paul interpreted the reference to God's anointed in Psalm 2 in exactly this way. Acts 13:32 and 33 say, And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, the death and resurrection of Jesus is what established his right to rule as David's descendant, whose kingdom will be forever. This recognition opens up a powerful reality for both the interpretation and use of the Psalms for us today. These songs are not obsolete and inapplicable for Christians today. As Michael LeFevre observes, when you sing the Psalms, you are actually singing the songs of Jesus with Jesus as your song leader. You can read this essay at g3min.org.